Hello and welcome to Lily High on Life. Today's interview is extra special to me because it's with my mother, Sophie Steiner. She doesn't mind me telling you that she's 87. And I'm looking forward to this interview in the light of what's going on around the world today and also in the light of Sue Smethurst's wonderful book, Freedom Circus that I recently read. My mother has done a testimony with um, with the Shoah Icar Archives, and I've interviewed her before about her personal experiences during the war as a child, coming to Australia. Today, I want to interview her about her views and thoughts, which she's very happy to give at any time. <laughs> about life today and about life in Australia and about coming from where she's come from and um, and what all of that means to her as she watches things unfold today. So, Mum, welcome to Lily High on Life. Hi, Lily. <laughs> How are you, darling? So, I know that you think I'm a little bit nishiga. No, you're not. <laughs> you are very smart, I think. Thank you. So what's it like coming from the background that you're coming from to have lived the life that you've led here in Australia? We arrived here in 1959 and so we've lived here a long time. Do you remember those first weeks and, and the first year or so when we first arrived, tell me a little bit about what it was like to come to Australia from where you'd been before. It was very strange. I thought I ended up on another planet. It was a different planet altogether. I came from the Soviet Union in 1959 when it was still Soviet Union. And um, we were not used to being free to say what we want, to do what we want, to live where we want. It was a completely different planet. In the beginning, it was very difficult because of the language barrier. We didn't, I didn't speak a word of English. So all I knew was how to say yes. And whoever asked me anything, I would say yes until my uncle, my father's brother that lived here, and we came to, said, you stop doing that because you won't <laughs> know what you're saying yes to. You might say something yes to something that you want to say no. So you better, I went to a school, a evening school. I was working during the day you were at kindergarten, Betrivka kindergarten. Then it was in Glenaira Road, not far from Kuyong Road. And I would drop you on my way to work. And um, in the evening after work, I went to school, which was the Brighton Road primary school. And they were learning English. So that's where I ended up learning English. And what, what, tell me a little bit more about 
what you mean by we were afraid to say things in Russia and getting used to what you could say here? Because, yeah, Soviet, it wasn't Russia, it was the Soviet Union. And we were told how to think, what to say, what not to say. And if we wanted to know what's going on in the world, my parents bought a AM, FM radio and listened to the voice of America. So we knew what's going on outside Soviet Union, but we were not allowed to share it with anyone because somebody would knock at the door at two o'clock in the morning, take us away, and we wouldn't know where we are. How long did it take after you came to Australia to realize that you were allowed to say whatever you wanted to? It uh, took quite a few years. My father never realized that he is in a different world. I was 25 and he was probably in his late 50s and he still lived with the mantle of not saying what you think. And when I was telling people what I thought, he said, you better be quiet because you never know. One day, somebody will grab you at the back of your clothes, take you away, and we'll never know where you went. I said, Dad, but that's not Soviet Union, that's Australia. He, I don't think that he could completely comprehend that. I got used to it very quickly, and I was talking to everybody how wonderful Australia is, and when I went to a simple milk bar and there was someone serving me, I used to ask my uncle, she must be a millionaire. Look at everything in the shop belongs to her. I was not used to people having commodities, having a business, having because everything was in the hands of the government. The government was telling you what to do, how to do, where to live, what to say, where to go. We are not allowed to move in the Soviet Union. That's what dictatorship is all about. And that's why when I see it now, what is happening in America with the Democrat Party, I think to myself, my God, they are doing it according to the communist dictatorship manifests. This is not how life is meant to be. Don't they know how lucky they are to live in a country like USA? And it drives me crazy. I know. Um, just going back there again, I mean, you came, I, I look around, we, we live in a nice house. Our cupboards are full of food, our cupboards are full of clothes, but I remember you telling me you came here with just one blouse and one mm. skirt, and we travelled by ocean for many yes. months. From Genoa to Melbourne, we arrived on the 29th of July, 1959, and... Um, 
my uncle, auntie came to pick us up and we were going along the beach home. And I was asking, where is the city? Where is Melbourne? Because all I saw was little houses. It looked to me like a village. And I said, don't worry. When you will get to the city, you will see that there are high-rise buildings, that there is a modern city, and people live. I couldn't, we came, my uncle lived in Glenira Road, not far from the town hall. And I remember I went outside to see what the city looks like. And I saw cars, cars and cars. And I came back and asked my uncle, is everyone a chauffeur? And he said, no, the car belongs to them. I said, what, everyone had a car? Yes, of course. I said, how is that possible? In Russia, you had to wait 14, 15 years to get a car, even if you had the money. Not many people had the money. Not many, not many people had cars, as far as I know. Nobody I knew had cars. How quickly did you start learning to drive? That was the first thing that I wanted to learn to speak the language and to drive a car. And that's what I did. I wasn't speaking very well, but I had a guy that spoke Russian and he was teaching me to drive. And I realized that it's not something that it's mission impossible. In Russia, if you would tell me to drive a car, I would say, oh, no, 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 because it was mission impossible to have a car. But here, it was a normal thing. Everyone, my uncle had a garage. He didn't have a car. He didn't drive. But all the neighbors and everyone we knew, and I discovered that I came from a very famous town in Poland called Zelechow. And there was a Zelechow Landsmannschaft here. And there were a lot of people because my uncle and auntie were very friendly, very um, open house. They had, and everybody was on the weekend when they go went to this beach, they stopped at my uncle and aunties and everyone had a car. It took me a while, I think a couple of years, to realize that this is a different world that I invented. And I was young enough to take it up very quickly. And when you... When you first came, you really came with just one suitcase or with one, very little. One suitcase. For me, a very small suitcase for you. And uh, my father had nearly nothing. And money was not something we came with either. No. How did you manage without money? We, I came, I started working for Mr. Gurevich from the yeshiva. He had a little knitting factory on the corner of Glenaira Road and Hotham Street. 
And because we lived in Glenira Road, I was walking to the to work. On the way, I was dropping you off at the kindergarten and walked to work. So I, was, I wasn't working full time because I had to pick you up. And I didn't know what knitwear is all about. I, when Mr. Gurevich came and asked me, what, what kind of a job do you do? I said, I play the piano. He said, I'm sorry, I can't give you that kind of job, but I have a knitting factory. If you want to learn to make knitwear, you're welcome. So when, like today, people have bank accounts and credit cards and some kind of money and money from the government if you're unemployed or if you're on a pension, what was it like, number one, to leave Russia, to travel across the world with no money. You were in, how long were we on the boat? Before we went on the boat, the first stop from Russia was to Poland. In Poland, we were waiting for a visa from my uncle here. And when we got the visa, the first stop was in um, Austria. And there was a Jewish um, the joint distribution, joint, yeah. the joint. Yeah, the joint. And the joint gave us money. The joint gave you bananas to try, and you <laughs> loved it. <laughs> and um, they... So how much, do you remember how much, or do you remember more we, than how much... How did you use it, or how did you make sure it lasted? We, we they gave us tickets to the to Italy because we were my uncle paid for the boat from Italy to Melbourne. So we went to Genoa, and we took the boat to. Australia to Melbourne. On the boat were a couple of Russian sailors that after the war didn't want to go back to Russia and stayed in Italy and worked on the boats. And when they heard us speaking Russia, they were in heaven. They couldn't do enough for us, especially for me. You and were very young and pretty. 25-year-old. <laughs> and you were the center of attention. <laughs> they, when we stopped at different ports on the way, they went, we took you and bought you uh, toys. And on the boat, we didn't need the money, but we had three pounds each. My Father had three pounds, you and me. So altogether we had nine pounds, which we didn't need to touch. When we arrived in um, Melbourne, that was the beginning, the nine pounds. My father found a job right away. He was a 
shoe shoemaker. He was not a shoemaker. He was making the top of the shoe. He worked on a machine, but he didn't do the sole. Other people did the sole. He did the top. And um, he was working for, don't remember the name, but he, he was happy that he was working. And I started working for Mr. Gurevich, so I was earning nine pounds a week. Wasn't enough, but it was enough to survive. And of course, we lived with the auntie and uncle, and they were a big help to us. And then um, when once, you, I remember you telling me when you got your second blouse, because you would yeah. wash, wash and dry <laughs> overnight. Yeah. Went, what was shopping like when you first realised you could we buy things? We went to Target, and I saw the stuff there, and I went berserk. I didn't know what I want first. I wanted everything. I was so hungry for the stuff that I saw that I, I didn't know, can I have this? Can I buy this? My uncle said, you buy the whole shop if you've got the money. I couldn't comprehend. It just didn't. We were so brainwashed into that Soviet system that always went in the name of people, but it didn't do anything for people. It's people were suffering. People were squished, squashed and squeezed. So not only was there nothing for people to have or to buy or to yes. want, but you weren't even allowed to say anything or talk about no anything way. that mattered. No, we were talking... We lived in one room. There was the, the flat had three bedrooms, so every bedroom had a family, and we shared the kitchen. And God forbid you say, my parents were warning me when I remember I was a child, don't you dare say anything in the kitchen because the other neighbors might hear and dob you into the... Uh, police. So I was stum. I didn't. It, it, I was so brainwashed that in the beginning when we came, I was a bit reluctant to open my mouth. But I realized I was young and I wanted to absorb the new life. So I learned very quickly. And so now when you remember those early days yes, of coming here and everything, and you're in a house where you not only have your own bedroom and your own bathroom, but your own living room and dining room, how, how do you reconcile this? I'll tell you about that. I had a relative that is still with us, thanks God, George Oshlak. And he was married to a beautiful woman called Eve. And they lived in Kew. So when we came, a lot of Zelechova invited us for dinner to welcome us to Australia. 
And we went to George Oshlak for dinner. And we walked in. It was a double-story house. And we walked in. And I asked how many people live here. And George said, it's only me and Eve. I said, what? What do you do in so many rooms here? <laughs> and he said, we live. I couldn't comprehend that a couple could live in a two-story home. I was bewildered. Even the house that my auntie and uncle had, had three bedrooms, a sunroom, a kitchen, a lounge, and a dining. And I remember the first time we walked in, they had carpet that used to hang in Russia. If we had a piece of carpet, it was hanging on the wall. But here, it was on the floor. And I stepped back. I didn't want to walk on it. I said, I'm not walking on that carpet. And my uncle said, this is carpet to walk on. You better go in. Gee, that was some kind of awakening. Anyway, you can get used to good things very quickly. <laughs> and we did. We realized what is good and what is bad. And we realized how lucky we were that we ended up in Australia. The whole concept of experiencing what you experienced because it's not just the, the differences between Russia and Australia. You had some harrowing times with your mother as a child as you were going from Poland to Russia. We were running away from the Germans. I was born in 33. The war started in 39. So we heard of the atrocities that the Germans were committing in other places. So my parents, because they were working class people, my mother was a dressmaker. And they didn't wait for the Germans to occupy us. They were running away from the Germans because they were uneducated, but very intelligent people. They were born intelligent. Some people are. Some you were saying that they, they knew yeah. about Jean-Claude. Um, My mother was quoting me um, the passages from... Evita. Not from Evita. The, um, the mask. What is it called that? Not, Fan not Phantom of the Opera, but there was... Phantom a... of the Opera. Yeah? Yeah. And I couldn't... Jean Valjean. That's the, the, that name, Jean Valjean, it's not Phantom of the Opera. It's Cosetta and Jean Valjean. And later on, when I started reading English and I read the books, I thought to myself, my God, how did my mother, uneducated, not even going to school, the children of 10 were sent to uh, uh, people that were uh, working, making clothes, 
to learn uh, trade. Trade. So, how on earth did she know? It turns out that they were very intelligent people, and they knew and absorbed more from what they heard. There were no television. There was no radio there, but there were other people that were organizing people like my mother and my father, and I have photos of them being in a um, uh, plays and in a play, yeah, and playing certain roles. It means that they they were. My yeah. mother, unfortunately, died very young, didn't have a chance to have a proper relationship. She was 47, I was 24. And, and then you immediately left Russia straight after she died, pretty soon no, after. No, she died in 57, we left in 59. After she died, we waited for the... But there was Jewish life and there were Jewish organizations. Not in Russia, not in the Soviet But the, the plays and things that, that they were in. That was in Poland. My mother was born and lived in Poland her first 25 ah, years. Yeah. And then she came to Soviet Union when in 1939 and she was born in 1910. Right. So... Um, so you came to Australia and very quickly you got used to the good life here. Not quickly, slowly but surely. And so today, you, when we're watching what's happening on television, especially with the election, you've got a lot to say because, as you mentioned before, I went you lived through the whole Absolutely. communist thing. Yeah, I knew what they are... They are doing everything according to the Communist Manifesto. You destroy the economy, you keep the people in fear, you don't, you make them feel that they depended on you like we are depending on then. Dictator then. He dictated then, he was telling us what to do, when to go, when not, at, like uh, Paul Murray said, 25 miles is not enough, 26 is too much, 24 is not enough, but 25 is just right. And this is what dictators do. They tell you exactly what to think. And unfortunately, people let themselves be brainwashed. It must be one of the people's uh, capable to be brainwashed. It's the fear. Even if with, they live with fear. So he's saving their lives. And they're not in danger of dying anyway. I know I would have gone to the protest, but I was afraid. I was afraid of being locked up and then I couldn't look exactly. after you. Well, I was afraid of the fine. Yeah. And so the fear drives you to compliance. Absolutely. But here in Australia, for you never really felt that fear before. Yeah. Yeah. You can do anything with fear. Once you keep the people in fear, they stop thinking for themselves. All they can think of is fear. 
Fear is a very powerful emotion. And that's what they're applying on. Now, the same is in America going on now. The Democrats want to turn the free America into a dictatorship. And it looks like the press, I'm surprised they're supposed to be intelligent, educated people. Don't they know what happened in the Soviet Union? Don't they read about the revolution? Don't they read about the people that went to the gulags for nothing? Because a neighbor said that something he, the neighbor said is against the government. So they come in the middle of the night and they take him away and they never see him again. Yeah, they have no concept of history. Even, no the, even the tech giants, you know, the owners, these young yeah. kids that own uh, Google and um, Twitter and all of these things, they don't know history. They, they have no idea who Orwell is. They have no idea who any of the philosophers are. They just know code and they're very wealthy. Yeah. So it's so like they in, do what they want. It's like in Fiddler on the Roof. When you're rich, they think, think rich. you really know. Exactly. And so these people are given powers beyond their capabilities. Yes, absolutely. And the lying, you know. <laughs> the lying is beyond belief. The lying, they, their whole system exists on lying. If you can't lie, you can't be a dictatorship. It starts with a lie, it lives with a lie, and it, it finishes with a lie. And I, am, I know that a lot of people came from Russia to Australia, to America. I'm sure that in America, for the Republicans, there are a lot of Russian Jews that went through anti-Semitism, Communism doesn't get rid of anti-Semitism. Communism encourages it. And because they need to show you that these people are the reason why you are not living well. And the reason, as always, is the Jew. Mm. That's why I am so afraid from the future generation, for my children and grandchildren, what world are they going to live in? Did they going to live in a world that I escaped? It's frightening. Yeah. Absolutely frightening. And especially, as you say, with the, um, when the press and the media yes. is buying in, not only buying into the lie, but is helping to disseminate it. Yeah. Yeah. I am uh. living through the, the bad times again. I'm too old to absorb it all, but I feel it all. But you made an interesting comment. She said, you know, you watch the History Channel a lot and you know a lot about history. And you yeah. said, I used, to, I used to sit and wonder how it was possible for these things in history to happen. Yes, and now I know. Now I know. It's a repetition of the history. That's how they organized the revolution in Russia in 1917. Killed the Tsar, not that the Tsar was an ideal man, but still 
even his brother in England didn't want to save him. Mm. He was afraid. And the what's happening with the election right now too, where everybody in the world is saying there's no evidence of fraud, no and you know that there, there is. is. Yeah. You, common sense. You've got your own common sense. That's how they exist. They exist on lies, on denying everything that's right and true and is in front of you. But, you know, I have friends who I know are reasonable people and they are also saying to me, Lily, he lost the election, he has to concede. And these are like supposedly normal people who are buying into the lie because of they've course, heard it. They course. won't even allow that's for the they, possibility of due process. Yeah, that's what they count on. They count on these people because some people they are They used to easy. be called useful idiots. Yes. A lot of people have become yes. useful idiots. The only channel that I can watch now is the Sky News because this is the only people that telling me how it is. I don't want to watch Channel 9 is an arm of the Democratic Party in America. Channel 9, if you watch their 60 minutes, their specials, all their programs, it's all about Biden and the Democratic Party and Trump means I'm not saying that Trump is the perfect man. There is no such thing as a perfect man. But he is closer to perfect than anybody that is there in America now, especially in the Democratic Party. And I'm surprised that so many Jews that believed in democracy think that this Democratic Party is the same Democratic Party that was 50 years ago. It's not. It's a different one. Look at all these people, the left wing that came in from the other Muslim countries and putting their uh, views and stamp. Stamp on the American democracy mm. and American constitution. They don't like the American constitution. And you understand the old Democrats, the of old course. Labour movement, because yes. coming out of Russia, party. it was a Labour Party, and Labour yes. Party was what you were Not used to. People of Labour, and my parents, I, I don't come from aristocracy. I come from working class people. They, I grew up in a home where there was all everything about working class people. And to me, it's unbelievable that people that grew up in such circumstances like America in a free country are not free thinkers. They're brainwashed. Can't you see what's going on? And it's funny to me also, you know, you always told me that you always tip well because your mother told you. Yeah, I did. Yeah. You... I never... Open, I, even when I came to Australia in the beginning, I was afraid to say anything. Later on, when I started talking to people and I saw that they were open and honest 
and saying as everything as it is, I realized that I'm in a country that I can say what I think. But your mother taught, taught you how to treat people that were of service. Tell the story about what your mother told you about um, always taking care of people. Oh, yes. Always. That never, until today, I never, ever expect someone that works, does something for me, doesn't work for me because I don't own anything, a workshop. But people that do things for me at home, I always pay them a De uh, uh, more than fair share of sometimes people are surprised and they say, well, I think it's too much. I said, no, it's not too much. You worked for it. Yeah, but even you deserve in, it. And even in the restaurant, you leave tips. Even in the restaurant, I always it's tip. Tip people. well. I, because these people work for it. And that came from my home from my parents that were not specially educated, just had a decency and right approach to how to treat people, especially working people. And in many ways, I have the worker's mentality. I understand that people that work should be rewarded accordingly. But what's going on now? is beyond belief, absolutely. I think to myself, what is going to happen to the world? How are my children and grandchildren going to live in this crazy world? I believe it'll still be okay. You think so? I believe Donald Trump's going to right. be our president for the next you four years still. You are the eternal still. optimist, Lily. I am the eternal the optimist. optimist. <laughs> okay, Lily. I tell you. I tell my mother, you know what? My world is far happier than yours. So come and join me in my world. And okay. if you don't like it, you can always go back. But I am in your world now, Lily. You did influence me a lot. I see a lot of things through your eyes now. But I still am the product of my generation. So it's, it's difficult you have to balance it out, and I do. Mm. I do balance it out. And life is a balance. So one of the reasons that I really wanted to interview you today is because, you know, we take for granted, so many people take for granted what we have today and what's real and what we should appreciate. And so coming from a place where you physically lived through not having, not just not having money, not just not having a, a place to live, not just where you were afraid for what was going to happen the next day, but not to be able to even think and talk about the things that were on your mind. And to have come through all of that, it's almost like a story. And so your story and your viewpoint of today from where you came from yesterday is really important and uh, people have no idea 
You know, we get upset if if we make an appointment for a manicure and the appointment is cancelled for a day. That's that becomes a tragedy. Whereas really, just the fact that we can go and have it all doesn't these become a tragedy done. to me. No, I look at it differently. <laughs> yes, there is always another day. And so, what's really important for you now? For me now, it's important that the world exists in a different way, in an honest, decent, and right way that everybody could enjoy their freedom and not be told what to do. Now, under the cover of that virus, the premiers are doing such horrible things to people that it's unreal to believe that people, and they become popular. That's what annoys me the most. If, if, if uh, people say that... Uh, that they are people, yeah, people think Dan is taking care of them. Yes, and he is not uh, freeing them too slowly. He's doing the right thing. He is popularities, and that's why they're doing it. And Palaszczuk, yeah, was re-elected yeah. also because people believed she was taking care of them. Yeah. Yeah. But and that the, concept of taking, being taken care of, especially once they take power, it becomes a very thin line. Very. And they want to be re-elected because they go there to start with for power. And when they've got the power, they're not going to give it up, especially the leftists. They are holding on to them for doesn't matter what it takes. And one of the most chilling lines was where Dan Andrews said, human rights are selfish. Yes, human rights are not selfish. Human rights are there for people to be happy, not to be selfish. Everyone is selfish to a certain extent. That's the nature of a human being. You have to be a little bit selfish, but human rights is for everybody, and it's not selfish at all. Well, the thing I love the most out of everything is that is, um is when you say that it's much easier to get used to the good things in life yes. and may there be still lots and lots more good things that we can get used to. Amen. Bis a hinderten Swansig. Alle bye. We finished.